Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is episode 240. I'm your host, Ryan Tansom. If you've been a consistent listener over the last year, you've been hearing us talk a lot about ownership versus your management role and how important it is to separate those two in your mind because your path forward can be wildly different and by decoupling your job in the business versus your ownership role and the owner of that financial asset, you're able to make decisions that are completely different than you would be if you're conflating the two. As entrepreneurs, we're often convinced that we're the only ones who can successfully operate our companies. But what if that's almost categorically untrue? On today's show, we're going to be talking to Ron El Sylvester, who took the company he worked for from $2.8 million to $240 million and through two private equity recaps and turned it into an international brand, all with the owner's blessing. Ron is a great case study in Arcona's methodology of intentional growth because not only did he eventually raise two rounds of private equity funding to make sure that the company could afford their scaling, but he also showed that the owners don't have to be the ones responsible for running the company. Owners should be the ones working on, not in the business. And on today's show, we're gonna be going into great detail about how and why that works so you can build a better business that doesn't rely completely on you. Understanding the future value and being willing to say no to the wrong opportunities builds a stronger company, stronger for you, stronger for your employees, and stronger for the eventual buyer. And it's a lot of fun. The ability to say no is so liberating because of your intentional focus on your big, huge, hairy, audacious goal. Ron's going to be talking a lot about how their BHAG allowed them to align their strategies, align their financials, align their culture, say yes to the right buyers, say no to the wrong ones, and enjoy one hell of a ride. Thanks again for tuning in. So without further ado, here's my interview with Ron. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Ron, happy Monday. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good, Ryan. How are you? Good. I'm super pumped for this uh, conversation. Uh, we got introduced uh, by Rob Dubay, who is a mutual friend of ours. He's been on the show. He, quote unquote, said, if you want to meet a sales machine, you got to meet uh, Ron. So <laughs> no, no expectations here. But uh, yeah. after hearing your background, I'm super pumped because like, just even on our conversation, it was a lot of fun. And literally, since you and I talked last, you guys bought a company. So. We, we did. Yeah, we did. That was in the works. I couldn't really talk about it when you and I did our kind of pre-show game plan. But yeah, it's been announced officially. So we're really excited about that. So I'll just kind of maybe set the stage for a couple seconds. And then I want to, you, you can kind of uh, give a background because, you know, Ron, you and I had this whole conversation about how intentional you guys were from the beginning, how you've grown and you've gone through multiple transactions. So we're going to unpack this. But before we go through the whole story, why don't you just give everybody the cliff note version of 
What do you do? How did you get to where you're at? Give us some context and then we can unpack it. Sure. Yeah. So I'm president and CEO of Service Express, which is based in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and has over 50 locations across the U.S. And now, as of about a week or so ago, we are international with an office just north of London based on a recent acquisition. And uh, Service Express is a third-party maintenance provider. So we talk about the TPM space of uh, we sell service contracts to fix uh, servers, storage, and networking gear inside large corporate data centers. And you guys have, uh, I don't know how how many employees you guys or what numbers you got that you're comfortable with of maybe Ron just kind of setting the context of whatever numbers you're comfortable sharing of where you started and where you are today, because it'll give some solid uh, excitement to understand how the heck you got to where you are. Yeah, no, uh, no problem at all. So when we, when I started back in 1997, we finished 1997 at 2.8 million, four locations and about 20 employees. And so currently we will finish in 2021 at uh, roughly 240 million, 800 employees and 50 plus locations in the US and now in the UK as well. And like Rob Dubay said, you're one heck of a salesperson. So <laughs> we're going to talk about how the heck you did that. So once you just walk us back, you know, in the nineties, how did you, how did you get to the current position you were at when you were in the 2 million mark? Because uh, when you told me your background, it was very intriguing to me. It was not, you didn't get spit out as some like raging salesperson. You had a, a different path that brought you to where you're at. Yeah, I think pretty non-traditional traditional path. So I graduated from Central Michigan, uh, which is based here in in, uh, in mid-Michigan in 1992. I had a teaching degree. So when I started college, I thought I was wanted to teach and coach. I wasn't that much of a student, wasn't that into school, but knew I wanted to go to college and figured, well, I'll teach and, teach and coach. That's something I enjoy and, and that's maybe what I'll do. So uh, when I got out of school, I no longer wanted to do that for a couple of reasons. One, I kind of realized one of the things about teaching that I didn't really like was that you had to go back to school, which I didn't really enjoy school that much in the first place. And so what you were going to make, your compensation was laid out for your whole career based on continuous education and number of years you taught. Nothing on performance. And I was like, I don't think I like that. You know, if I'm a better teacher than you, I should be paid a lot more. And if you're better than me, you should be paid more. And uh, so that didn't really sit well. And, you know, I think you grow and, you know, I don't know if you mature is the right word, but you just grow and evolve as a young adult between 18 and 22. And I had some friends from Central that had graduated and were getting sales jobs. And I just, the way they would describe it and the way I would kind of watch and see what they're doing just really resonated with me more at that time. So I decided I, would, I didn't want to teach and I came out and wanted to uh, build a career in sales. And, you know, now like Central has a great sales program. So does Western Michigan, that's an hour down the road. So you can get a, you can get a degree, you can major in sales. Well, there was none of that that I knew of back in the early 90s. You know, business was either marketing or accounting and finance. It was not sales, right? And so it's like, how do you get, you gotta get sales experience. Well, how do you do it? You gotta find a sales job doing something. So my first job out of college was selling health club memberships for $6 an hour, plus a little bit of commission, you know? So I'm sure I made my parents so proud with with, with that. But, you know, I did that for like a year and uh, really got the sales blog, really enjoyed finding out what was important to people, walking them through the health club and then, you know, signing them up for a membership. And just that juice of getting a signed deal started to resonate. And, uh, but I, I knew I wanted to get an outside sales. I was really searching 
And I tend to search, by the way, Ryan, which means I take action and then I figure out if I like it or not. I don't do a lot of research up front. Obviously, with my so-called teaching career, that was all laid out before I went for a teaching career. I just didn't pay any attention to it. So I just jumped in. And and so on that note, I was like, man, I really kind of want to be my own boss and uh, get a real estate you know, license and sell houses. So I did that, sold a house, and uh, but then realized man, I'm working all nights and weekends while my buddies are all hanging out. I'm sitting in an open house or showing houses and this isn't what I want to do. So I stopped doing that. I got an outside uh, sales job selling long distance services. This was a thing in the early nineties where there were resellers that would sell like, I don't exactly remember how it worked, but they would like buy lines from MCI, AT&T, Sprint, and you could resell long distance services at a reduced rate, business to business. So I would do face-to-face code calls. You know, now everybody picks up the phone or through LinkedIn. I'd go in a business park and go not, you know, go in and who's take in up the, the, take up the, the cards, right? <laughs> the, take up the card. If you got in, they trained you. They really did great training, like a one call close, like seven steps to the sale, all in one call. And uh, so I got great training. The job was pretty horrible. It was pretty tough. But man, I developed thick skin. I got the training. Again, I learned a lot through that. But then I was like, I need a change. So I quit that job and I moved to Nashville, Tennessee with a good buddy of mine from high school who was like the exact opposite of me, researched everything and had a job lined up right out of college and went there. And I quit my job and moved down and with no job. He's like, what are you going to do? I'm like, I don't know. I'll find a job down here. You can always get a sales, sales job. <laughs> Isn't that the so, truth? You can always get a sales job, work for nothing. And that's all in performance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, I did that. I got nine to find a great a great job uh, with a great little company down there. And we did that for three and a half years before I moved back, joined Service Express. I moved back to, you know, the story, met a girl, came back, got married and uh, ended up joining Service Express, coming in as a sales manager for them. So it was my first leadership position that I had with Service Express. And so give us a little bit of a backdrop so that, because you didn't found the business, but, you know, when you were telling me on our, on our previous call, like interesting owner mindset, because that, that owner kind of let you run with it versus you and I chat a little bit about how egos get involved with owners as they're thinking long-term. And I, I, you know, based on what you were saying, the foresight with the owner was very, I'd say evolved based on what I've seen. So kind of walk us through like, what was the setup and then what was your duties and like, how did you grow the business right off the bat? Yeah. So I came in as a sales manager and, you know, he said, he hired me to do that and said, I want you to drive all the revenue activities and he would take care of service delivery and, and support and operations on the back end. So that's what I focused on. And I brought the training I got at uh, the long distance company, the seven steps to sale. I brought that right here. We didn't do it all in one call, but really spread it out. I think did it a little bit more professionally. I took the code calling techniques, but we would set appointments on the phone by that point, the sales training. I took a little bit from every job that I had, which was really cool looking back, managing multiple locations. I took from the company I worked at, contract sales managers in Tennessee and proposals from the company that, that I support in Tennessee, uh, Tanner Corporate Services, put together a standard proposal. And so did all that, standardized everything, brought in training and taught the team. And it, you know, it just started to, to take off uh, from there. And so we had a good run for initial couple of years. I got into some trouble when I tried to start hiring for the first time. What do you mean by trouble? Uh, I was selected wrong. I was really bad at it, you know, and <laughs> people will tell you like, oh, I have an instinct for hiring and I'll, nobody has an instinct for hiring. It's really hard 
to do. I learned a skill and a process to go through, which helped me make better decisions. I learned it like a lot of things the hard way. And so I stumbled there for a little bit, but got that straightened out, really started to focus on culture and people and building relationships. Again, I kind of did that wrong at the beginning. I was too intense, too driven, too numbers focused and didn't lead with connecting with the right people. I didn't hire right. I wasn't connecting right. And really just stumbling for a little bit, you know, first couple of years went great. Second couple of years stumbled. And then we came out on fire again, got some things figured out. Company was growing and just got to a point. So this would be like 2002. So I'd been there five years. The founder had really taught me the business and really taught me not only the industry, but more about finance, the service side, the operation side and everything. And, uh, we're going through some growing pains. When you're a growing company, there's always growing pains. I mean, we still go through some. You know, you're always getting bigger and trying to figure things out. And, and part of that was, I think, him and I talking about his strengths and what he really enjoyed was the startup part of it. Like to kind of making something almost from nothing, risking a lot and making it making it happen. And he was great at that. And I mean, he really took it from nothing to to where when he brought me on and helped me grow it. Where I think as we started to grow, where I really liked was scaling it, which would be systems and strategies, right, around training, around all things in the business. And so him and I talked through that. And I just might, you know, I was like, hey, I think you should name me president, you know, and just be an investor and let me let me run the company. And he said, all right, well, if you if you want to be president, why don't you go out and act like you're the president? See what see what you do. And so I did. It was kind of funny because we still promote this way to some degree. Like after we talked, I went out. I didn't I didn't get the job as president, I didn't get the title. I didn't get any compensation increase, but I got permission. And he gave me the opportunity to see if I could go behave like a president, which was at, at the time and still is. Anytime this, I encourage new leaders, which was to come alongside other leaders and say, how can I help? What are you doing? What's in your way? How do we communicate, work together, get everybody on the same page? I mean, communication and run around talking to everybody and getting everybody on the same page, I think is a strength of mine. And uh, so I did that for about 90 days and it was going pretty well. So he just said, hey, I think I'm, I'm ready to do this. Let's let's make this permanent. And so we did in 2002. And yeah, he, I mean, it's an amazing move. I've never seen another, I've really never seen another founder do that, that he would trust me at the time and he would, he packed up his office, left the company, left all day-to-day responsibilities, never came back in an operational standpoint. I would bounce ideas off of him, communicate with him. He'd come in when I wanted to talk with him, but he really just said, go to Ron and he let me do it. And he let me figure it out and let me do it my way, which was probably different than his way, but he let, he let me do it. And I, I just think it's one of the greatest, I think it's one of the greatest moves of, you know, like a young business owner, has has done and it, it worked out well. Super interesting. This is where like, cause it, I think it, it lends the data point run to how you guys got where you are. And what I thought, what I think is interesting, I'm curious uh, to hear more about, I think the listeners will benefit of like, why was that a thing? Like, so like when I hear those kind of stories, I go, well, either the owner understood about valuations and value growth, cause there was some bigger picture in mind that allowed them to put their ego aside or whatever it is, or for some reason, they hated the you know more mature business so bad that their hate for the operations allowed them to get out. But I'm just curious, like what was the catalyst to actually make that thing happen? Yeah, I think a little bit. He didn't he didn't hate it. I just think it wasn't didn't really give him energy that he wanted to be in it all the time. But he didn't hate it. I mean, he loved it. He loved seeing people 
take advantage of the opportunity. He really built it and wanted people to take advantage of it and do that. But I, you know, we were always, I think that was a mindset that, and he probably would have sold a lot sooner if I wasn't telling him like, Hey, I'm not ready. Don't sell it. Just keep being my investor (laughs) Um, to do that. But he really had that built to sell mindset. We, we, you know, I remember when we were working together and he had all of us and me and some other leaders listen to Michael Gerber. Do you know Michael Gerber? The sure. yeah, yeah. He really got that concept, the entre- entrepreneurial myth, which was it's not about the owner doing everything. You've got to create the system, the processes, and let other people do that. And so I think it was a balance. I think he saw you know, maybe potential in me that I could run this and do it. And he knew that's what I wanted to do. And he was really passionate about given opportunities to other people. And th- that's where it grown to and what the opportunity looked like. And uh, yeah. And, you know, fortunately it, it did well. Like we, we had to do well this, we wouldn't be talking if it didn't uh, <laughs> right. if it go well, but it'd be, it'd you know, be a different story, but <laughs> yeah, but nothing was guaranteed. He didn't know it was going to go well. He really took that chance uh, and he had all the financial risk. Him and his partner had all the financial risk. And so I, I, I always just still look back and marvel at, at that. So, you know, this is in 2002 as you're kind of going off now and you're, and you're taking to the next level and you say you're talking about how you're passionate about scale, scaling. And so from our conversations, you talked about like the fact you almost took it to market once and then you ended up doing it again. So the reason I'm kind of expediting this compared to most stories is because you've done this multiple times. So we want to kind of get into this nuts and bolts of it, but I'm also curious, like what triggered it to like allow you guys to start accepting different offers and like, where was that in the timeline? Yeah. So, you know, 2002 started growing at double digit growth every year. That was always our goal and objective. And in fact, in 2002, I formed my executive team with my chief operating officer, my CFO, and my, my chief revenue officer at the time. There's four of us. And we came up with a BHAG, J- Jim Collins BHAG, Big Harry Audacious Goal, right? And we said, we want to be 100 million in revenue by 2020. I mean, people looked at us like we were stupid and crazy. Like 100 million, we were like 7 million at the time. <laughs> but we're like, no, let's, if we do double digits, we kind of did the math, like we can get there. And that's our BHAG. And a BHAG is supposed to make you nervous. And a BHAG is supposed to, you know, make you, it's not a projection. It's a, I have no idea how we're going to get there, but that's what we should be thinking about. And that will help us think about the scale that we need and the systems and processes and everything that we need. So, you know, one advice I always give when people are asking about, you know, wanting to be part of a growing company or wanting to scale their companies is to think about what's the goal and does everybody have a shared goal? Because too often people will tell me that, then I'll talk with them about, hey, this is why I always ask. If I took you all in separate rooms and asked you what your revenue goal was and what time, I think I did this with Rob maybe, and just like, uh, you know, would I get the same answer back from every one of you? And I get this look, you know, and uh, I think Rob did it pretty well. I think they did have that that conversation you know, had, had come with that, but other people I've talked with about that. And so what you realize is they wouldn't, everybody kind of has their own different ideas. So I think one key thing I would say is agree on a shared goal, a BHAG in our case, and that you're aligned to and driving to, because if not, then you pull in different directions. So, so we set off towards that double digits every year through the financial crisis going across again, the, the, the founder always said, this is, he will exit. He was building it to sell it. He thought it was going to be like five years. I kept talking him into like, <laughs> oh no, stay, stay. This is going good. We're I'm having, having a lot of fun. I'm having We're a lot doing of- good. And I'm just not ready for private equity and all those things yet. So 2014, and we'd been approached and I talked to investment bankers, some private equity, just trying to learn the whole game. We got approached by a firm, came in, 
said all the right things, put a pretty nice number out there, a bigger number than we'd heard. And I said, well, I have to take this to the, to the owners, you know, and, and uh, we talked through it and said, I, you know, I think this is worth pursuing. And so we just said like, Hey, as long as this is straight up, you know, we're Midwest guys, we're really not for sale, but you know, if this is straight up, this would be interesting. I think we could maybe do something. And so we signed an LOI. We didn't have a banker, which was my first mistake because I was caught in the middle trying to negotiate everything and between the founders and the private equity group. And I didn't know what I was doing. And long story short, that did not, that did not go well. There was a retrade on that. It was kind of like the, the, you know, the negative stories you hear around private equity I experienced, right? The retrade, they find everything wrong. The prices got Define retrade for the listeners who, who might not be familiar. They give you a number. And then a month later, like, well, after further review, it's actually, <laughs> yeah. you know, 20% or whatever the number was less than that. And you're like, what? Like, well, yeah, because of this, this. And so according to our internal rate of return that we had to begin with this, we can't pay this much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was the first. And we tried to work around that. And it was, well, okay, we talked ourselves in. It's still a good number. But basically, the longer we talked, the terms got worse you know, every step of the way. And so at the end of the day, we ended up walking away from that deal. But it was a great learning experience, you know, as it was tough, but it was a great learning experience. And what we all learned was, as we regrouped was, we're ready to go to private equity. I was ready. The executive team was ready. The founders were ready. And we learned and said, hey, let's, let's, uh, for where we're at, let's hire an investment banker. Let's run a process and and kind of do this right. So, in 2015, we interviewed investment bankers, selected one, and went through a regular sort of formal private equity process where we, you know, put together a packet, the whole deal, and went out. The bankers walked us through, and we ended up selecting a firm in July of 2015. And so I want to, which is super helpful for the context, Ron, and I mean that because I think there's so many different parts of this that we can go dive into to highlight some of the really interesting things that you got learned along the way, because you've also sold it again to private equity and what we can, and I want to unpack that. But before we do, you know, this first experience that you had, I'm curious, you and I talked a lot on our previous call about mindset and the shifting of people's mindset away from the kind of the vanity metrics of revenue employees and gross profit to value and valuations. And there's this whole other game over here that I mean, your revenue has jumped up quite a bit since the last time we talked because you bought a company, right? And so I'm curious, like, you know, when you had this $100 million BHAG in line, that was revenue, and you went through this whole process of learning through experiencing, trying to take it to the market at that beginning, what shifted your mindset or how did that happen as you started to understand value and what got you to the point where you go, where you said to your team, we are ready for this. It's just not this one. So what did you learn throughout that process that got you ready? I think we were kind of learning along the way, knowing that in order to get the highest valuation, which is normally a certain number of like taking your profit, right? Times, whatever the number might be, five, 10, whatever it is. Right. And so I think what we learned along the way, even prior to that was having repeatable processes and systems, not having customer concentration, not having location concentration, all these different things, because right, anybody who's going to invest in you is going to look at the downside of anything that's out there. And so- Do you guys know that ahead of time though, Ron? Like, you know, you can't, because you've gone through it enough. I'm just curious, like what, what maybe what I'm trying to bubble to the top is, 
you speak about so much like this fluidity. And I do the same thing on this show, right? We talk about multiples of EBITDA and deal structures. And you start to realize like, where did I start to learn these things? And then how did I, how did my behaviors change because of what I learned? Couple of things. One, we read, we read the book Built to Sell. And uh, do you know the book? Uh, John, John Willow has been on the show a couple of yeah. times. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. So great book, right? He, he lays it out there completely on that. And then Reading Inc. Magazine, Norm Brodsky kind of wrote, he wrote a monthly article. And you know, I don't know if you know Norm or not. He's but been on the show too. <laughs> been on there too, right? Yeah. And so he really detailed the experience that he had. I think one one where he walked away and one where he sold it. So Well, it's so of- interesting, Ron. You said the $100 million mark. And I, it's, I was actually thinking of Norm's interview where he said, I want to be $100 million. And he went broke trying to get to $100 million. He And then the next time around, he was twenty five yeah. million in revenue and a ten million dollars in EBITDA, and he sold it for one hundred and twenty million. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So really interesting. So we just learned that, and I think again that the we just all we're that's part of the fun of being here. You just you're trying to figure out and learn all that stuff for for perspective. So we did. A, we are always doing work, calling again what Michael Gerber would say, working on the business, not just in it. So we're always thinking around how do we add value and what would create the most value in learning. So. We are, we, I think we, we caught on to these things and Norm says it in, you know, through his series. And I think Warlow does too, like building your business to sell is a great way to run and build your business. And Michael Gerber does. He says your business is for sale every year. You're either selling to somebody or you're deciding to buy it yourself. Meaning every year you keep it, you've just bought your business. So what are the things that you need to do to make it the most valuable business you could be? And it was, so Gerber Gerber talks about that uh, you know entrepreneur with a technician mindset where they're just in the business working hard all day but not thinking about these scalable systems and processes. So again, the founder introduced that and got that concept early, showed it to us. We all bought into it and then realized this is a great way to run your business. You should always be built that way. And we can get back up to the present of what where you're at in your story, but like I'm curious, like. You know, you mentioned that that you were stuck in the middle between the buyer and the seller. And like, I can kind of relate a different situation because it was my dad, but I was in the exact same position as the overall structure as your situation. How did you deal with it? Were you and your owner? Because that's complicated when you're trying to also paint your own path with the new buyer. Also, what is your financial? I don't know if you had a phantom stock plan or something with clear expectations, but like the amount of moral integrity you probably had to have in that situation is probably interesting. <laughs> it was a, it was a tough spot. You know, the founder, him and I, you know, we've become good friends. He was great through the whole thing. He supported me through the whole thing and worked with me, with me through it. You know, so we always had that. We had complete trust. We'd been working together for that time by for 17 years. We'd been through a lot growing the business. He's an awesome guy, uh, still a good friend of mine. So we had that complete trust to work through on that. So that part worked good. It didn't, it didn't, didn't work as well on the other side where I got beat up a little bit, um, but you know, on that and kind of pushed into some, some tough spots, but you know, again, it was all learning. It was all learning and, and figuring it out. And so. So then after you went through that experience and you're, and you're going through the more intentional of like, Hey, we're going to take this to market. Was there anything that you learned? I mean, double digit growth. And I want to hear more about how you guys were accomplishing that, but like, what did you have any kind of epiphanies of what was valued in the marketplace with what you were doing and how did your first experience change how you approached the second time around? I think the first experience we, we, it really helped us just illuminate. We're now ready, right? I think that's part of it. It's just your mindset. Like, are you all in? I'm not sure we're completely ready the first time. But after going through it 
and regrouping said it's time it's time they're ready to exit it had grown larger than they had ever anticipated they were going to do well we were ready to invest and grow stronger and right and have that capital to come in we knew we had a big market you know i think what we learned that the banker helped paint a picture of is the size of our market opportunity how we positioned against competitors and other things and then how we really this helped too how we got really clear on our strategy for the future our plan and our financial projections which is a big part of that which i love to run financial projections i always like to be like what do we need to be doing today to get where we want to be three and five years from now so i think all of that was really helpful and then we went through the process this the kind of formal process i think the biggest thing there too was we just said i had i had kind of misunderstood private equity i thought they came in took over told everybody what to do and directed you um and i'd seen some other people do that and that's what it seemed like to me from the outside what i really realized is the right private equity partner will buy into your vision and strategy they may have thoughts and opinions or sh- or ideas but the right ones won't force anything on you they'll buy into what you're doing then just work with the team to enhance it and help develop it. And so we put together our strategy and we went through the process. And uh, I remember we did a practice run before our first like management presentations, my executive team and I, and we were trying to rehearse everything and what we were going to say. And it was a brutal practice session. It was, it was bad. And uh, I remember leaving that night, just going, man, we have one of these tomorrow. I'm not sure how this is going to go. I even called the, the founder on the way in because he wasn't really part of the process. Again, he let us run it. And I just kind of told him what had happened and kind of where we're at. He just, you know, it was, he just, he was great. He just said, look at, you guys know the business, you know, your plan, go share your story. The right firm will buy into it, understand it. And they'll love you guys like I have um, and do that. And if they don't, or if it's not their cup of tea, that's okay. Like it's, it's not bad, like better to know, but don't try to be right. Just go tell the story and see who it resonates with. So I came in, called a quick huddle with my team and shared that information said, let's just go have fun today. Like we always do tell the business and, you know, see where this takes us. And and that's what we did. And through, through the process, a great firm really rose to the top and they are fantastic partners uh, of ours for four years. And they didn't operate. They didn't tell us what to do, but they're super smart and they asked great questions and they threw out great ideas. And together we figured out some, you know, enhanced strategies to help us grow. And it was a lot of fun. And uh, I still stay connected with them. They're great. They're great people. So what I would love some clarification on, Ron, is how you guys and your team had the that, that vision that you talked about and then like your options. So like there's this concept that I've been trying to hammer through to people on the show that if you got the right value and understand the value of your company and you really understand your vision, you can go marry those two up, but you're going to have like multiple offers that might have different opinions of what they want with your vision, but have the right financial offer. Right. So you're trying to take your vision and the financials and weigh both of those things against your offers, where most times you have people just running after that dollar amount, having no idea that their visions are completely out of whack with the PE firm or the buyer, or they might have different intentions. Like you just said, you just didn't understand what those intentions were because you didn't think to ask because you're only focused on the numbers. So you have to be so focused on both to essentially go get married to another partner. So I'm kind of curious, walk us through some examples of how you experienced that. Well, I think for us, it was really important who our next partner was going to be. And so we created a little grid ourselves and how we were going to grade the private equity groups that came in to meet with us. And it was things around market knowledge, you know, market knowledge, culture fit, 
buy into the business. We had about like eight categories. And after every meeting, we'd come back and grade them independently, send them to my CFO and he would calculate them all. And we kept a running tab because you start meeting with so many that you kind of lose track. And so we did that. And one of the things, one advice I would always give people, which is pay attention to the questions that they ask. That to us was sort of a clarifier whether they really got our business or really bought into our vision or not. If they were asking questions that were sort of aligned or adjacent that enhanced things that showed they understood where we were going and were asking good questions on how we've gotten where we're at and how we would get where we're going, that was a good indicator to us. Some of the firms didn't ask very good questions, you know, or would make flippant comments on something. I remember one was like, you know, they heard of our great customer service scores and without thinking or even putting a thought, they're like, well, you should raise prices. I was just like, yeah, maybe, you know, I don't react to anything. I was like, okay, raise prices. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, maybe, but not that flippant, not like that. Like you start to get that, that vibe of who's really going to partner with you and who just sees it as a, you know, some, some thing they're going to own and take it in a direction that they want, they want to go. So I think for both of our processes, that was really key for us. So you gave a good example of what is a bad question. What was uh, maybe some questions or maybe more of the answer or how they responded where you were like, okay, those people really truly get us. Yeah, I think, you know, culture is big for us. That's that's our number one core value is our culture and differentiator for us. And so I think people who took the time to really dive in and understand our culture and the people and how we do it and how it's important and why and how it's led to results, you know, versus, yeah, 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 let's get to the, you know, let's get to all the financials. There's a difference there between people who spend time wanting to know about the people and the culture and thinking about how not to disrupt that going forward, backed up by reference calls and checks with all of their firms to make sure they've demonstrated they know that versus people that pay lip service to it or have a really bad view, in my opinion, on what culture is, you know? And so I think seeing seeing alignment through there was was really key. The offer that you got from the buyer, did you like, and I don't know if there's any, like, because I'm viewing like how you're weighing these offers, right? Because you've got the buyer, their intentions and the alignment of the vision, you've got the enterprise value, and then you've got deal structures. (laughs) Every one of those are different. Yeah, for us, they all lined up though. And I think the point being is that the the firm that really buys into all that you're about and all that you do, those should all pretty well line up because the ones who didn't quite get it or didn't quite buy in, their offer reflected that or deal structure reflected that. The one who was super excited about, not the one, we had multiple, but the one we selected was super excited about it, knew the industry, knew knew us. And so they put together a great offer. It's not a fight and a tug and it's not hard when it fits and it's good and they're fair and you go through that. And then questions that you have as you're walking through structure and compensation and other things. I remember talking to them about it and they were just really good and reasonable and calm and thoughtful. And here's how we think, how do you think? What would work for you? And, oh, we could do that. And like, we want to make sure the team's aligned. And they were really thoughtful. I remember coming back to my team and going, man, if this is how they work through issues, like this is good. I can talk through anything with them. And they, there was no judgment or, you know, like again, the firm, the one that went bad. Anytime I had a question around stuff like that, it was just like a fight and it was judgment. And like, oh, that's not how you do it. You know, and like, it was completely night and day. So I'm really glad I had that one experience because then it showed me what a really good experience would look like. So bottom line is I really do believe that those things it doesn't always happen, but with the right fit, they should line up pretty well. It doesn't mean you don't negotiate at all, but they came and it just made everything fit. And it was obvious and it was clear and 
I think it takes, you know, focus on having a valuable business that you can walk away with and you're having fun allows you to take the time to select the right people. Too many times, even people just have their head down, waking up, they need to because they're burnt out, they're out of cash or whatever happens. And then they just have one option or something like that and don't understand how to align all the stuff that you're talking about. We were working from a position of strength because we didn't have to sell it. And we were running a good business. And if, hey, if at the end of the day, it didn't work out, we'd keep going for a couple of years, you know, but it all, it all came together. And I would just say, kind of jumping ahead four years later, we went from one private equity group to the other. Very similar process, very similar structure. We made our chart to grade everybody. And, you know, the firm we selected, they just lined up on all the key elements. And then all their reference checks were all like spoke very high of them. And I asked for all of them, you know, it was like, don't give me three, give me everybody. And I had multiple, like I'd call, my CFO would call, a head of sales would call and we would check them out. And it just all came back very, very positive. And so, you know, we've been very, and they've been a great partner. We've been with them, you know, about 14 months and they've been fantastic. So as bad as the first experience was, the next two that I actually did, so have been just phenomenal. Well, it's super interesting, Ryan, because like one, one strategy that I love for people is to have, you know, if you're growing value with a couple of different options in mind, you don't have to commit to anything, but you're going towards a valuation. And like I say, like, yeah, if you're under time constraints, private equity might be bad because you're, you're trying to essentially find your soulmate in a couple of dates, you know, versus like taking the time, but you can align everything that you've discussed with the perfect private equity firm to fuel the capital and the growth. But if you can't find that perfect fit, if you turn around and did an ESOP at the right valuation, you something that's options or keeping it, but you have to spend the time to find that alignment versus just focusing only on the dollar amount. That's exactly right. I think it's what are your goals? What's the best fit for you? What are you trying to accomplish? So is an ESOP better? Is private equity better? Is a strategic buyer better? You know, we had made the decision, hey, we're not going to invite strategics in. We want to own it. We're the platform company. We want somebody to fund it, to invest in us. And we want to accelerate it. And here's our plan. And we just wanted some kind of capital dollars in there to do that. And so private equity was best for us. But I think asking all those questions and whoever all the partners are, all the players, I think getting alignment. I think we had alignment through the executive team, through the founder, his partner. We were all on the same page, what we were, what we were looking for. And, uh, you know, the founder said, just like, don't worry about the the valuation, it will be there. He never said it has to be the top, whatever. Let's just play it out. And we all agreed the right firm, that should that should come, right? And uh, it'll all come together. So then when you, after you guys had closed the deal, a couple, and feel free to get in the weeds on this too, because we've covered a lot of technical stuff in my show that like on the deal structure. So you and your other executives who are going to be, you know, private equity backs management. How many times have we've heard that? How did you guys, you know, so if someone's listening and they've got executives that are like in your position who they want to help move to the next stage with a PE firm or something like that, or someone that's listening in is in that position, how did, how did you guys structure where you got more equity upside in the next deal? I don't know how, whatever details you want for unit management to get to participate in that next round. And then what did you guys do to fuel growth? Like what was the plan to utilize that new partnership? Yeah, so we came with a projected growth based on our historical performance. And for us at you know at the time back in 2015, it was an expansion model of opening new offices, going from two offices a year to four, and and uh, it's some investments on some uh, some lead generation strategies. And so we said, you know, here's our pro- regular projections based on historical. But if you took those numbers and then accelerate them, two offices to four, and 
lead generation from where it's at to double or whatever. Here's what the model should show you. So we had an accelerated model. And so they got excited about that, right? Because they they said they want to, we're also looking for private equity companies that were investing in growth companies, right? So you also have those niches. Some are turnaround, some are, you know, maintain. We are ones that like they wanted to grow. We wanted to grow. We are all aligned on that. And so we shared all those projections and got excited and got buy-in on like, that's the strategy that we will support and back uh, going forward. And so that, that was part of it, showing that accelerated plan, having an idea. Like, you know, if you show up without a plan, they'll probably help you give you one. <laughs> you know, our whole thing was, we have the plan. We want you to buy into this plan and it may be tweaked or adjusted, but the construct of the plan is there. But if you don't have one, they're going to want you to figure, figure that out, right? Well, how much easier it is to align your vision with their vision when you actually have a vision that you can describe. <laughs> that's exactly it. I mean, that's exactly it. But, you know, I just think so many companies and, and so many sort of smaller ones or up and coming ones don't spend enough time. I, I would bet that you find that out. They don't spend enough time talking about those things and getting aligned around all of those. And I think that was a strength of ours. We are very aligned and had a vision for the future. And so, you know, they got excited. We're like, yeah, I want to be be part of this. So I would always encourage people to spend more time there. Well, what I found also interesting in the first time we chatted is like also your your vision and your strategies, but your financial acumen of like how you went about showing this. Cause like, you know, you've mentioned double digit growth and your accelerated growth. I mean, I've had people around where they like someone either knows it because they experience that growth is expensive or they just kind of intellectually understand it. But when you're doing double digit growth, you can grow yourself into bankruptcy. Like, I mean, so yeah not understanding how your growth plan is going to cost money and where you need to put that money. Most people don't understand how to tie those two together. Well, that's another great one that you learn too, right? You go, hey, if we're going to accelerate investment here in years one and two, here's the money invested, but when does that pay off? When does that accelerated come in? And you have to know that and have a projection for that and then measure against that projection so you know if you're working or not. So many people go, we'll just invest dollars here. I want money for here. And they go like, what's that going to get you? Well, if it gets you the same results, then that's called an expense. If it gets you accelerated results, that's called an investment, right? <laughs> yeah. and so That's again, part of the key of having those financial metrics set up so that you can measure, are we getting a return on this investment or not? And we had a track record for doing this. I think it was really good. This goes back to, again, I think when the founder left, the day-to-day business and we ran it, we really had to understand how to run the business for an investor. It was really turned out to be fantastic training ground for how we would run and scale the business and show return on investment. Because now think the difference here, when you're founder owned and you're investing money, you're investing their money, like his money, right? So, (laughs) I mean, so you better know like what you're going to do with it and when you're going to get it back and in what return, right? I mean, that's what I would want to know. The same thing applies when you invest private equity money. They're set up to like institutional investor, professional. They want to do it. But the same concept applies. You still have to know when are you going to get the return and what is that going to be like? Or you're not going to get as much of an investment as you want. So it's just really fortunate the way we were set up running the business. It, it kind of just led right into this. Because I remember people when we sold the private equity, people were like, Oh man, you got to grow now and you got to, you know, you're going to be, I'm like, I've always had to grow. I was hired to grow. <laughs> yeah. I've never not had to grow. I've never not wanted to grow. That's in our DNA. And that's another thing that I encourage you. Maybe you have these conversations with, with founders that 
people come to me and talk to me because like the, the growth guy, you know what I mean? Like, Hey, you grow. I want to grow like you. And the first question is like, why? And like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, why do you want to grow it? Why don't you just like, if you're at a good sized business, like why don't you just stay there and just run it and just, you know, have a great life and do that. Growing's hard. And they're like, well, I remember telling this one person like, well, you grew. Why would you even say that you grew? I'm like, yeah, because that's how I was wired and that's what I was hired into. And so that's always been my path to grow it. But that doesn't mean it's everybody's path. It doesn't mean everybody should grow. So I just encourage owners to like really be truthful with themselves. Like, what do you really want to do with with the business? And I think getting clear on that will help lead you to what are my next steps if I want to exit or, you know, again, do I want to go with a private equity? Do I want to go with a family office? Do I want to go with a strategic? Where do I want to go? Whatever. Do I want to do an ESOP? What are all the options? But you sort of have to begin with the with the end in mind, right? The Stephen Covey. Begin with the end in mind. What am I? What do I want to do? And then kind of work backwards, and that should help shed some light on it. Have you Have you noticed that, or do you get? Oh, do you get those kind of- like you, like you just you're just stealing stuff right out of all of the same <laughs> books that I I love it. Yeah, and, right. And it's so crazy to me, man. Like I, I mean, I'm literally almost found five years in this show, and you got thousands and thousands of downloads on every episode, and you go, okay, why is it so difficult? to get business owners to think like this. And I, you know, and we, Bo Burlingham's been on the show. We talk about what do you want from your business and why, but like you talk about all these options and we literally had exit off on all of our marketing years ago. We took it all off. It's like, cause people have a visceral reaction to that word. And I think it's cause they just don't understand all the options and like value growth. I mean, this is about growing value. If you, what, are, what are your experiences talking to people where they just, what do you say to someone when they don't get it? I'm just super curious. You know, you just got to ask questions. I mean, I think, you know, what I say, say is just like, you have to get clear on what you want first. The same thing I've said, like, what does you want to grow? What does that mean? Are you all aligned? If you did, the, if you put us all in a different room here with my executive team, they would tell you our BHAG in 2025. They would know. They tell people they interview, they tell new hires, everybody knows it. Like I'm clear, we talk about it all the time. So do you have that level of clarity of where you want to be? That's that's kind of first and foremost, right? And then how are you going to get there? What's the plan? What, what do you do when someone's like answering your que- the question vaguely or you start to realize that they don't know? So like, like what if I just like blindly just regurgitated a bunch of vanity metrics to you? I want to go from 5 million to 10 million, Ron, and I want to go from this many employees to this many. Like you just keep asking questions or like... <laughs> Yeah, well, if you throw out like that, I'd be like, so how are you going to do it? Like five to 10 in what time frame? Two years, four years, five years, what's the time frame? And then how are you going to do it? Meaning what do you have to be next? So say it's five years. So you want to go to five to 10. So what's your revenue going to be at the end of 2021, 22, 23, 24, 20? Do you know it? If you don't know it, you need to figure that out. And then you say, okay, well, it'd have to be this. Okay, that's good. Now, how are you going to do that? Do your current, so do you have enough salespeople? Do you have enough leads? Do you have enough locations? Whatever your triggers are, do you have those to get there? You probably don't know. So I'm going to ask you all these questions, right? And then go like, okay, so if you don't, what's your plan to hire them? By the way, how much then do they cost? So if I want to go from two offices to four offices in a year, I knew what that investment was. I knew the cost of an office with the rent, the labor, and everything that we had to do. And I knew when the return was. So I could say it's X amount year over year. And then here's when they start contributing. Like, I would just ask all those questions and then I start to get deer in the headlights. But I go, these are the things, I'm not trying to overwhelm you, but these are the things that I would encourage you to think about that we had to think about. So you should be able to work plan and have a year by year plan 
Because otherwise, it's a guess. Otherwise, anybody can say, well, Ron, yeah, double digits. I'm going to grow 20% a year. Good. What's your plan? And what does that mean every single year? And then how are you going to fund it too, right? And I mean, what's interesting, Ron, I think you, like the, the reason I, I find some of our similarities in how we think is that you got sales and finance. And that's kind of like the two combinations that I have where like, and, and Rob's going to be listening and laughing because I, I grew up in copier sales, right? 400 phone calls, 15 net new appointments, five proposals, three closes, 50 grand in revenue. And that's how you do it. But like so many people don't have a repeatable sales process. And then they go, how are you going to fund that sales process? And you kind of just have to do both of those things. And if you're not forced to do both of those two, then you can kind of fall into that trap of just vaguely chasing these fictitious goals. Well, yeah. So you go like, okay, because I'm like you. I had the same thing here. 20 meetings a month. We get you eight proposals. We get you four new logos. Average size of new logo was this. And then the average add-on in the first 12 months was this. Like, So we had all the metrics. And then I go, okay, what do I want revenue to be next year? If I have the same team, can I get there? No. How many people do I need to add? Oh, you need three more salespeople. Okay, good. The next question, what's your turnover? What? You add three. You think, no, you're not going to have, you're going to have zero turnover? You're not what you're planning on? So factor in your turnover. Like take a hard look and then you build in this. That's how you get to modeling though, by doing that. And then you go, okay, if I had five Ryans versus three, and they did that. And I lost to Ryan along the way, but I replaced them. And by the way, their ramp up time, I mean, it, it gets pretty involved, but we did this all over time too. So like, this can be overwhelming to people. So then you go like, start with this, because that means like, I need to hire three more salespeople. Okay. What's their cost? Are you going to, do you have the margin to do that? Does it take capital to do that? Are you willing to lower EBITDA? You know, you're going to make less money this year by doing that. That will increase your return later, but are you good with that, right? To your point, funding all these things. These are all the conversations. This is called working on the business. And that's where we always spend a lot of time. And this kind of goes back to your built to sell discussion is like, it's so much more fun to own the business when you're doing this. Like, I, why wouldn't anybody want it? it, it well, what, what do you think? Like, why, why do people not do the hard work? Well, I think they're just so busy running the business. I, I think they're not, they're working hard, but they're just in the day-to-day. It's hard to get your head out of the day-to-day. I'll go back to Gerber, you know, working in the business versus working on it. And that was a discipline going back. Our founder always did that. He would, he would take out so many hours a week to think about and work on the business. And people just get caught up being busy, 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 busy. And they don't think about this stuff. And then they end up going, I want to exit in two years. And I've they're just sort of lost. I think that's what you probably deal with talking with a lot of people. They got in that mode. They looked up one day and was like, I want to exit. What does that look like? And what does my business look like? We always had an eye towards an exit. Even though it came years later, we always had an eye towards it. And what I find interesting, if you think about like all the sequence of events that you've discussed, one of the things that absolutely exploded the growth was the hiring of you and the owner stepping back. And it's like, it's like literally the bottleneck. Remember the goal? I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Goal. It's like the bottleneck. It's like literally you find this in the manufacturing process, like where's the number one bottleneck? And it's usually the owner. And so like being able to hire someone, any words of wisdom or experience of like compensation plans or, or motive, how to get that next level, that team, whether it's you or the people like you, that become one of the biggest challenges that owners trying to figure out how to hire that first person. Yeah. So I think a couple of things. One is I'm thinking about, you know, why is it so difficult for people to work on the business? I, th- I do think an advantage we had was like, and I freely say, it, I never took all the financial risks to start the business or buy it to do that. So I've been a hired manager 
my whole life. So I've kind of been built to do that. And in some ways, I think that was freeing that I didn't have to worry about the bills and payroll and all that. It was just figure out how to grow it. So I think I was freed up to think about these things in the business probably more. As far as hiring the right people, you know, that's a tough one because I don't think there was a grand plan when he hired me to think I was the guy that was going to do this. I mean, we laugh now. I just talked with him and we laugh now. Like we never dreamed we would be the size we are now doing all these things. Like it's uh, exceeded everything that we thought. But yet as we achieve more, we see the opportunity to do more. So to boil it down, I think what he was really good at and he taught me was he shared a lot of information in the business, the financials and just the the strategy and the market opportunity. He wanted us all to think like business owners. It doesn't mean we're all tied in with um, performance-based comp or equity or anything like that. It was just, he shared it because I think he had an experience in early in his career where people didn't share it. So you feel like you're flying blind. And so I think he was, he always employed me like, share it all with the team and you'll be surprised and amazed at the ideas that will come back and they'll help you and they'll figure it out. You can't take it all on yourself. And he was really, really good with that. And I think by doing that, he built up a team that understood the business and could take it from them at the right time and grow it. If he wouldn't have shared all that with us, we never would have been in a position where we could have taken it and, and ran with it like, like we did. And I say we, like me, it wasn't just me. It was you know, I got the position, but it was my executive team and the leaders that we had that all came together to do this. It really took everybody to, to do it. And it's interesting because like you experienced what it was like having a kind of a passive investor. So when you're looking for the PE firms that you want to partner with, you have an idea of what it is that you want and what it is you don't want. And I'm curious, like, was there any different styles of how the first and the second PE firm were motivating you and your employees or your executives that were slightly different? Or did you kind of have a lot of the similarities from, from owner to owner? Yeah, a lot of similarities. The biggest thing that we were very clear was we didn't want an operating partner. I don't want you in here showing me and running the business or sending people on site to be here a bunch. We were very clear on that. And we had a great track record where they both bought into it. They both said, that's not what we do. We're not operators. We're investors. They both have said, if we're operating, we're in a little bit of trouble. Like we're not operators. And uh, again, looking at their track record, that's not what they do. Now, if you need resources or need connections, whatever, they both were great at providing those. But that was the, the biggest thing was, hey, we can do this. We just needed the financial boost to get where we want to go. And again, here's the plan. Here's the strategy. Here's the investment. Here's the return. And they go, okay. It's not quite that easy, but they get it, ask a lot of questions, but then they go, okay, now let's measure against that. And are we, are we getting it? And in our first turn, we did great with it. And the second one, we're off to a fantastic, fantastic start. So what was it like selling uh, a company from one private equity firm to the other? <laughs> yeah, it was kind of similar actually, because they stayed, the private equity group really stayed out of the process. We ran through it, but it was actually a little bit easier because we'd grown to a size and our market had to enough where it was known. And uh, the first time we were really educating a lot of buyers about it. So people are trying to figure it out and try, we were trying to figure out who really understood. The second time around, people kind of knew what it was. And so it wasn't as broad of a process, a little bit more narrow, but it was very similar uh, process and experience. And again, I think the process led us to a great partner for us at this period of time in, in our growth. You had to probably really truly understood that like, that first private equity firm really did believe what you believe because 
they could have probably chosen certain financial outcomes above and beyond your guys' big vision for the company because that's really at the end of the day for a PE firm, that's what they get rated on is their internal rate of return. So like, uh, did you see any circumstances where they could have led one direction and use their muscle to push you in one direction versus the other if they were not the right partner? You know, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, for us, we did some acquisitions and we still do some, but we don't do like a big roll up amount of acquisitions by everybody. So I think if they weren't the right partner for us, they could be really forcing and putting pressure on doing more acquisitions or buying buying companies that we did not think were the best fit. Again, I've been very fortunate. I picked right. Both of them, you know, the one that I was with four years and one I'm with now, anytime that we said one wasn't a good fit for us, they wholeheartedly agreed and absolutely zero pressure. If they're the right fit, that should line up pretty good. And, and private equity gets a bit of a bad name. And there's some firms out there that deserve it. I'm you know, sure. But I tell you that the one that the, my experience now has been phenomenal. They've been great partners. But we spent a lot of time making sure we're aligned and very clear around the strategy and the return and the, and the opportunity. And so I think that's a, you know, I kind of keep coming back to that being very clear. If you're not, they'll help you. And then you go like, maybe it won't be the way you want to go, but how do they know if you don't tell them, right? We've been very clear about the direction we wanted to go and how we would do that and what the end goals were. And, you know, the first one was a home run and we're, you know, knock on wood, we're on our way to here in the second one. So I got a couple of follow-up questions and then we'll wrap up. Is uh Okay. So you're 240 million now. What is it like? You, you keep pushing out that goalpost. What's the BHAG now? <laughs> 500 million, 2025. Okay. I was going to say, I'm, I'm assuming I'm going to get a very clear answer about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everybody knows it. We, we, we talk about it a lot. Combination of organic and acquisition or what's the, what's the main strategies? Yeah. Double digit organic growth every year and then uh, disciplined mergers and acquisitions. And so I use the term discipline to just, again, to convey it's not a roll up. It's not just buy companies for the sake of buying them. It is only by the ones we think are, are great fits for us great culture fit, meaning they know how to take great care of their employees. Employees work together really well and they, they're passionate about taking great care of their customers. Those are two things that if you don't have, I can't I can't give you. It's interesting. I just saw a Gary Vaynerchuk. Do you follow him yeah, at all? Yeah. yeah, everybody knows Gary V. And he showed an old interview recently with Jack Welch, who's the former CEO of GE. And he talked about, I just saw this on Instagram a couple of days ago, but Jack Welch said the one thing he would put more emphasis on early in his career would be like, You've got to get the culture fit right. Don't get so caught up in the numbers. If the culture fit's not there, don't do it. And uh, my leadership team, we've been kind of sharing that because we talk about that a lot. And so I think that's that's why we have to be so disciplined. And then when we when we like somebody, like the one we just did, we go after it pretty aggressively, you know, and and do that. So those are the things: double digit organic growth, M and A, uh, disciplined M and A, and I got the projections out to where we're going to go, and then then we'll set a new BHAG as we as we hit that one. Um, and we pro- we do not have time, but I just kind of curious if there is a somewhat short of an answer on it. Is the double digit organic growth? So like you guys aren't in a service based business where you can just put the throttle down on Facebook ads and triple your revenue. I mean, you're in a normal B two B kind of business services. So like. What is some of the, you know, couple of takeaways or secrets behind that maintaining that double digit growth? Yeah, I think it's uh, staff, right? So it's how many salespeople do you have? I talked about it earlier. How much do they sell on average? So how much do you need? Then it's funneling in uh, the pipeline. We're really spending a lot of time on measuring and understand our pipeline 
what what size is that? What percentage do we close every month? So what if we're going to do this? What how many leads do we need in there? How many meetings? How many leads generate from our demand gen team to build the pipeline a certain size? We'll close a certain percentage every month. And we go, the pipeline's not there. Now we're asking salespeople to close something out of nothing. Like that's not it. And so it's really just an extension now from just pure headcount to to pipeline build and more from location build out because we're pretty much built out throughout the US to market penetration, how we're going to get into there. So again, it, the story evolves, but it's the same concept. Know your metrics, know what they are, know what they need to be and look at what are we on pace for every single year and make adjustments as necessary. I love it because it's not some silver bullet. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, you just, <laughs> it's, it's all the activity, man, and close ratios. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really comes comes down to that, especially for a services like us and phenomenal customer experiences so that you're not losing customers. You deliver and you over deliver on any promise because you're working so hard to get them. You do not mess that up once you get them. So question for you, two, two more and then we're wrapping up. Um, what does intentional mean to you? Intentional means knowing exactly what you want to do and then going after it. And so like don't nothing on accident. Right. Nothing on. Don't just I hope this happens again. I Here's a big number. I hope we hit it, but I have no idea how to be very intentional about our strategies and what they are. And if you make mistakes and you will, you're intentional, then you correct them because, you know, you know what you're trying to do and you measure against it. So everything for us and everything in my life, I feel like is intentional. Like if you're a dad, are you you intentionally trying to be a good dad? Doesn't mean you're going to be a perfect dad. Doesn't mean you're going to make mistakes, but there's an intentionality around, I want to be involved and raise my kids a certain way, not just have them, let them grow up and hope it turned out okay, right? So, I mean, it's, I don't know if that's a good analogy. Or not. I love it. I love it. It's just no, yeah. Bo Burlingham, right? What do you want and why? Yeah, it really comes, a lot of it comes down to that. You see it like it's so many people have trouble answering it, and that's okay. But if you want to do it, you need to go back and answer those questions. Bo's awesome, by the way. The last question is, where does everybody get in touch with you or follow you as they, they want to watch you hit that 500 million? Oh, thanks. Yeah. So uh, company website, serviceexpress.com. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. And then I actually have a uh, page, ronelvesteffer.com. I've got a weekly video blog that I put out on leadership and organizational development where I just share thoughts and stories around what's going on here. And uh, so now I'm also on Instagram and and Facebook as well. So you can find us. And with a quick Google search, because we invest in those searches, we should both pop up (laughs) right away. Ron, this has been an absolute blast. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I enjoyed the conversation as as I knew I would the first time that we talked. So appreciate it. I absolutely loved the interview with Ron. I am one of the biggest believers that a super clear vision allows everything else to fall into place. Ron was talking about how clear they were with their purpose and their culture and their vision of the business. They were able to say no to potential buyers and rate them according to that vision. They built the financials and their growth rate and their sales and marketing metrics all to align with that original vision and that BHAG. I mean, the clarity that a BHAG provides for everybody and all the strategies is so worth the work because it's just liberating that you don't have to worry about anything else because you're focused on your target and you don't have to wake up every day saying, hey, I wonder if we're on track or off track when you don't even know where you're going. It pays off dividends in the short term as you're growing and also long term as you look to an eventual exit, whether that's private equity, 
and which type of private equity firm is right for you or a strategic buyer or an ESOP, all those choices, you need to understand how your vision could be impacted when and how you want to transition your role as a business owner and when and how you want to liquidate your financial asset. Lots of choices, but you need to understand your choices in order to reverse engineer your plan. If you want more clarity on your ultimate plan and how to pave the path forward to grow a more valuable business to create the choices you want, go check out our intentional growth training, arcona.io. You can take it on your own, just go through the course by yourself, or you can hire Arcona to go through four coaching calls over four weeks to make sure that you really understand what that ultimate vision is and how you can obtain that vision and create the choices you want long-term. Thanks for tuning in and I will see you next week.